Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Surface. Introducing Microsoft Surface Laptop Go. Available in three colors, its thin light design, built-in HD camera, and touchscreen turns any space into your workspace. More at surface.com slash laptop go. So health disparities really reflect the condition that arises because we have never been in a status or a situation where we had equal access to all the opportunities that have made this democracy of ours so strong. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 730 Podcast, and I'm your host, Wally White. The reason we call this the 730 Podcast is because in the 90s song, Ebonics, the late, great Big L raps. If you 730, that means you crazy. Some might call me 730. I was recently hospitalized and diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and I'm trying to make sense of an issue both for myself and my audience that's too often misunderstood. I'm not a mental health expert, but I'm here to engage mental health professionals, athletes, artists, and other cultural influences in conversations that explore how trauma and mental illness intersect with black culture. I recently had the great pleasure of sitting down with Bob Fullalo. He's the professor of social medical sciences and the associate dean for community and minority affairs at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. I'm not going to lie, I was really nervous to sit down with Bob. He's been at the forefront of HIV and AIDS research in our country for several decades now, and his acumen and knowledge is every bit of intimidating. In a lot of ways, I felt like I was a freshman in college again, getting ready to sit down with a professor that I really admired and respected. So I was super nervous. And Bob showed up to the studio, and we started to briefly chat before our recording. And one of the first questions he asked me was, who's my audience for the podcast? And I was like, I can make or break this interview with this question. So uh, I had to really think very, very carefully about how I was going to respond And my response to Bob's question was, although this is a project and podcast that focuses on mental health and black culture, I look at the podcast as being far bigger than that. I think this is a project that's going to facilitate conversations for people that are typically unwilling or unsure or simply uncomfortable having these types of conversations because they don't identify with this particular space then I think that's there's almost even more value in that. When we think about the black experience in America, so much of the experience is not understood. And part of the reason why the experience isn't understood is because a lot of these conversations aren't being had. But Bob schooled me on so many things. He was a volunteer during Freedom Summer in 1964 and went down to Mississippi to help blacks register to vote. And as I said, he's been one of the lead social researchers on the HIV AIDS epidemic in our country, particularly in terms of how the disease affects poor urban communities. I was just so fortunate and lucky to speak with him, and I think you guys are going to feel similarly as you listen. So here it is. I'm wondering if you can sort of give our audience a brief breakdown of what your research focuses on primarily. I've been involved in public health research since 1986. Mindy Thompson Fullalove, who was my wife at that point, who is probably the leading social psychiatrist in the United States, was asked to put together a research group that would focus on minority issues in HIV-AIDS. At that moment, I was at the University of California, Berkeley, running a math science program. But it was very clear that starting a research group in the 1980s meant you need to have someone who could help you manage your data, analyze it, 
write it up, and assist you with whatever was going to be necessary with publications. So Mindy bought my time from Berkeley so that at the University of California, San Francisco, I could be part of the group that formed what is now the Center for AIDS Prevention Studies. So I've been involved with HIV-AIDS literally since then. And although it's not my current focus, it does help understand why, from HIV-AIDS, I became really interested in teaching in prison. I have maintained for a number of years that HIV showed up on the shores of the United States long before we actually knew it was here. So if you can imagine a virus that doesn't leave any trace, that isn't necessarily going to create symptoms, imagine that that's circulating around the sexual and drug-using networks of the United States. And imagine because it takes HIV almost 10 years to make itself known, that in that 10-year period, we as a nation decided that we're going to lock up people who were engaged in drug use, either because they were selling it, possessing it, using it, and perhaps committing crimes under its influence. I said that the war on drugs, which we began in the 1970s, probably sent to prison the group that was most likely exposed to HIV during this period when we didn't know it was around. Nobody was symptomatic. People were sharing needles, especially in New York City. And at the point of the 1980s, which a lot of people mark as the real beginning of the war on drugs, we were already, as a nation, embarked on an experiment. We now call it mass incarceration. As a way of controlling the public, as a way of managing our problems with drug use, and as a way of just dealing with issues of race, especially when you consider the fact that roughly 60% of the people who are locked up are black or Hispanic. So in arguing as a public health researcher that the last thing you wanted to do was create a reservoir of infection, I pointed to mass incarceration, locking people up during this flaming interest in arresting anybody who was engaged with drugs, as the real factor that has driven HIV-AIDS into the black community. So when I got a chance to actually go to prisons and teach, and better, to teach public health, it very nicely united my interest as a researcher and my interest as an educator teacher because I could engage with populations that were definitely impacted by this epidemic and not only do some teaching but also help put in perspective much of the work that they were doing on the inside. I think people aren't aware of the fact that in New York State prisons we have something called PACE, Prisoners Concerned About AIDS, Counseling, and Education. They do a better job of community education around HIV, a better job of breaking the silence that so often surrounds this epidemic than just about any group of public health officials or professionals that I have ever met. So I'm not researching this as much as I'm providing whatever technical support I can to folk who are learning about the virus, who are engaging in the study of public health, and who are interested in doing public health practice by doing what they can to control the impact that HIV has on the inside. I have other kinds of, uh, how shall I say this, projects that I've been engaged in for a long period of time, and they're pretty far-reaching. But I think the ones that have to do with HIV, the way in which HIV was correct, connected excuse me, to drug use, and the degree to which this is bound up in mass incarceration, that, that really has been the focus of much of my professional life for quite a while now. You mentioned the PACE program. It sounds like your perception of it is that it's pretty comprehensive. What are some of the things that, that PACE is doing to kind of address this education surrounding this disease? Well, maybe it's important to point out that HIV infection in prison populations, prison communities, 
is substantially 15 to 20 times what it is in the general public. So let's be clear, we're dealing with what is still to this day in 2019, a really important reservoir of infection. So that means in prison, you're going to have folk who are engaged in risk behavior. There's no question about it. There's drug use and consensual as well as non-consensual sex that happens behind bars. That means that an incarcerated person is really at risk either of transmitting or being impacted by someone who's infected. And folk and PACE are really trying to help people understand how do you negotiate and navigate a risk environment like that? How much can educating people about HIV help people engage in behaviors that are safe? Then there's the whole issue of folk who are members of a wide variety of sexual minorities, from transgendered folk to folk who are openly um, having sex with men. There's also the issue of how do we deal with a population that is really stigmatized, especially on the inside. Much of what they do to deal with the issue of stigma, to help people understand, look, we are all in this together. That is, folk who are incarcerated, we have so much in the way of suffering. We don't need to add to the burden of that by engaging in the kind of stigmatizing behaviors that are so often associated, not just with being incarcerated, but also being someone who's a member of a sexual minority. They do a lot of work on that. And then there's a whole issue of testing, counseling, and education, just education in general. So they're involved with all of that. And it's not surprising that when incarcerated persons leave the facility, they are often really sought after to be working within drug treatment programs, as well as in HIV AIDS service programs, which really abound in the city of New York, since, as I think you know, New York City still is the epicenter of the epidemic in the United States. The sheer number of people, people. more than 100,000 who are living with the virus, means that you're returning to an environment where the skills you got on the inside, especially thinking about it, talking about it, and educating people about it, are really going to be quite serviceable and definitely going to be uh, marketable at the point that you get out. You talk very candidly about one of your former students, I think Richard uh, Gamara, mm -hmm. and you mentioned that he's working in public health even now, correct? Oh, it's more than that. I have three folk who finished the Bard Prison Initiative, finished their college educations in the CUNY system here in New York City, and then entered Columbia University to pursue master's degrees in public health. So I've got two who graduated and who are currently working for the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, plus another who is doing graduate work in the CUNY program, the CUNY Graduate School of Public Health. And then I have a fourth individual who is completing a master's of health administration at Columbia right now. So I'm not just helping people see public health. I'm saying you should think if you want to go back to your community and do some work that's really impactful about becoming a public health professional. And you should think about pursuing a master's degree because CUNY as well as Columbia are felony-friendly environments, as is the Department of Health, because we're all acutely aware of the large number of people living in New York City who've had some involvement with the criminal justice, justice system. system. And we're very much aware of how much that involvement impacts issues related to their health. Where does mental health issues or concerns, how do, how do they intersect with this idea of dealing with uh, with HIV or, or AIDS and sort of navigating that space. There are mental health concerns surrounding that too, right? Major issues. The stigma has made it, in many parts of the country, a shameful condition. 
That means that folks often are aware of their status. They know that they're infected. But if you're in the South and you're in the Bible Belt, the last thing you're going to do is make your condition known. So folks hide what's going on in their lives. And that often means that although they know their status, they don't necessarily fill their prescriptions. They're in a small town. They worry about what happens when they take a prescription to a counter and you see something like Truvada, which is one of the drugs that we use to fight HIV, and all of a sudden your business is out in the street. Not only is it out in the street, it gets back to your church, to your church home. The folk in the church all of a sudden treat you as a pariah. They don't want anything to do with you. They think that your infection is a badge of sin and shame. So it becomes very clear that the social consequences, the stigma that's associated with being infected are so great that it is a source of depression. It is a source of continuing anguish. I mean, think about it. You have a condition. You could be treated for it. But you're so worried about the shame that's associated with being ill that you won't do anything about it. I think just imagining the mental health stresses that are associated with that kind of situation really help explain why increasingly in HIV, the most important thing we're doing isn't just providing the medications. We are trying to provide appropriate mental health care for all the folk who are going through so much. Then there are the folk who become exposed because for a variety of reasons, they're not really in a position to be responsible for their behavior. You may have folk who are engaging in all kinds of risky sexual behaviors because they need to be sheltered. They need to be fed. They need money. Uh, Engaging in that kind of behavior, especially if it's a way of uh, having you, for example, engage in drug use to medicate a depression or post-traumatic stress disorder, all these things will lead to a cycle of risk behavior that exposes not just the individual but everybody in the community. And here's the key, our inability to talk about it. It's been since 1981 that we knew this virus was in our midst. In many black communities, you still can't have a conversation about HIV and what you have to do to prevent it, what you have to do to treat it, without worrying that the stigma is going to get in the way of the conversation. Oh, man, why are we talking about that? Ooh, you got to tell me something about what you've been doing, where you've been, what you've been. I mean, I I think of all the things that uh, has me worried about just the mental health of the community is that we've had this threat present going on 40 years, and we really don't know how to talk about it well enough to protect ourselves. I, I think at some levels, this is this is one of the things that we really confront. And, and you're right. Everything about what we know about mental health is involved in what it is that people have to do to be able to be effective in militating for their own health. You have to accept the fact that this is not, for example, a death sentence. A lot of people still think, oh my God, I'm infected with HIV. My life is over. It's not. But if that becomes the persistent theme that's playing in your head, you won't necessarily do the things that will get you better. The meds that we have are, by and large, quite effective. We just saw a person die at age 100 who's been infected with HIV. Wow. Indeed, indeed, indeed. And I think this is one of the things that isn't well known. But it is one of the reasons why, especially here in New York City, we've tried to do such an important job of having people think about, talk about, And be aware of, if you're HIV infected, you should be getting treated. You should be taking the meds. You should be doing okay. Especially since that has a great deal to do with whether or not the epidemic will continue to exist. Biggest thing about HIV is if you are effectively treated, the level of virus in your blood can become so small, so diminished, that you can't infect someone else. Either through drug use and the sharing of needles or through engaging in risky sexual behavior. 
So getting that message out there and getting it through the fog that is associated with, ooh, this is an epidemic. This is what happens to bad people. This is what happens to folk who aren't able to manage their affairs. Getting it through that to see it as literally another health condition that we can treat and that can allow people to live reasonably normal lives becomes one of the big challenges. And it's one of the reasons why I'm so impressed with the PACE program, because they seem to have figured out how to articulate that message, how to get it out there, and to have it an integral part of what happens in many of the communities, one of the many of the incarcerated communities that I happen to work with. How has the perceptions of the disease evolved since you've been studying it? And and how has research evolved and changed since you started your work in this space? Very good question. Maybe the most important point is that in the 1980s, we located the problem in the individual who was at risk. We wanted to know, why don't you use a condom? Uh, what problems do you have negotiating sex with a sexual partner? We wanted to know, why is it that if you're sexually active and you're having sex with men, why is it that you have 30, 40, and 50 partners? In other words, we kept trying to understand the psychological antecedents of the risk behaviors that expose folk to the virus. Then all of a sudden it became really clear, and Mindy Fullilove was one of the major drivers of this, that isn't just the individual. It has everything to do with geography. HIV isn't randomly distributed in the United States. It's largely an urban problem, an urban epidemic. It's largely in black and brown communities, especially here on the East Coast. And it's largely in communities that are also suffering from a range of other health disparities, not just HIV. So diabetes, cardiovascular disease, you suddenly begin to understand that there are risk environments as well as risk groups. And Mindy started to say, shouldn't we try to understand something of the nature of the environments? Why is it that some places are going to expose people to this virus more than others? Here's one way of looking at it. A black man in Topeka, Kansas, belongs, in terms of his race, to the group that is probably the most impacted by this epidemic. However, living in Topeka means he's got less of a chance of being exposed to HIV than a white boy does who lives in New York City, in downtown New York. So it becomes real clear that some of what we're looking at have to do with the social and physical environment where people are in. You live in an environment where there's a lot of drug dealing going on. Is that the primary way in which people are medicating a variety of different mental health conditions? If it is, then the use of drugs and maybe the use of some of the sex work that's involved with drugs will expose you to the virus. And it's a particular condition, social condition, that's associated with the neighborhood where you live. So the idea that there are social determinants of health, determinants that really structure the set of choices that are available to individuals, now we're looking at that really, really carefully. We're trying to understand what are some of these social drivers of health disparities, and HIV in particular, and we keep coming up with mass incarceration being the one. Think about it. Uh, for a young black man born in the year 2001, you have a one in three chance of going to prison and going to prison for at least a year. That's mind-boggling. It suggests that the social environment and the disadvantages that are there are so extreme that you might be in a community where the only way you're going to be able to make any kind of money is dealing drugs. Here, we're looking at constrained choices that are very much formed by the nature of the segregated community in which you live, which has very few life chances that are available to folk, limits the set of choices that people have available to them, and as a consequence, 
almost just by virtue of being there, increases the likelihood that you'll be exposed to this virus and that you'll become infected. That's the big change in thinking. Understand that we're not just looking at the individual and the individual's risk behaviors. We're, we're really trying to understand risk environments and policies like mass incarceration, which have so much to do with the quality of life that's in those environments, that focusing on them becomes one of our big priorities. And that's a big change from the 1980s. I recently read some stuff and came across some stuff of the HIV crisis in the South for black men. How do we account for for that crisis right now? Well, again, uh, the South has become the region that now has more new cases of HIV infection than any other. A substantial number of of cases are really tied to drug use, but a hefty portion that's connected to sexual behavior exists in places where it's difficult to get the kinds of prevention messages out there that we know have an impact on people's behavior. Um, The fact that you have schools where abstinence only is the enduring policy, where you can't tell kids that if you're sexually active, there are things you can do to prevent you're becoming pregnant, you're becoming infected with a sexually transmitted disease, but we don't do that. Abstinence only means the only choice that people are giving is become monogamous, get married, and wait until you're, what, 20 before you have sex. Are there particular states that you see like this sort of frequency happening and it happening most? Yeah, the states, the 26 states in the United States that don't have the Affordable Care Act because they're run by Republican governors that struggle with issues of access to health care, that struggle with issues of how you finance health care, especially through something like the Affordable Care Act, and where maybe six out of 10 African-Americans who are in the South will live. So they're in places where there are limited resources to do public health prevention. There are limited resources to help people get access to care. There are limited resources to do things like use the PrEP program to provide the kinds of... uh, prophylactic treatments, preventive treatments that can prevent somebody who's sexually active from becoming infected with the virus. I mean, all the things that we have done reasonably well in the East Coast, and especially here in New York City, are a real challenge in the South because of a lack of resources and because it's really difficult to engage communities successfully so that they're militating for their own health. Struck as they are by Sigma, they are really not engaging in those kinds of conversations unless we're really talking about the small pocket of folk who are impacted by the illness and who are doing their best to militate to make sure that things get better. But I know that the level of conversation I can have in New York City is almost impossible in Jackson, Mississippi. And I think that that difference translates very nicely from the policy situation to the allocation of resources to help us effectively deal with the the direction the epidemic is taking. Similar to mental illness, there is a huge stigma surrounding HIV. It simply isn't talked about much. And HIV rates are particularly alarming for a risk group such as gay black men in the South, who have a 1 in 2 chance of contracting HIV. This exceeds the HIV rate in several countries in sub-Saharan Africa, many of which have been at the center of the global HIV and AIDS epidemic. But let's not dumb this issue down to risk groups such as black men in the South who are taking sex with other men. We must also consider their environment. 
Take, for example, a state like Mississippi, where 76% of teens admit to having sex before they graduate high school. However, state laws mandate that school districts adopt sex education programs that are either abstinence only, which encourages students to wait until marriage to engage in sexual activity, or abstinence plus, which educates students on contraception and STDs, but prohibits educating students on how to use condoms. Mississippi's approach to sex education is disconnected from its reality, especially when you consider that 40% of black gay men in Jackson, Mississippi are infected with HIV. And you may wonder why these statistics are significant to mental health issues confronting communities of color. There is a direct correlation between people living with HIV and mental health conditions. As people with HIV are two times more likely to have depression than people who don't have the disease. Your research hasn't specifically focused on mental health issues, but they have focused on inequity. There's a high demand yet limited access to mental health services. And I imagine in a lot of communities of color, the same thing stands true for HIV prevention, education, or or even services, or access to medication, or doctors, or whatever the case might be. How do we how do we address the issue from a public health perspective of providing services, providing education, providing treatment to some of our most vulnerable populations, which are oftentimes black and brown communities? So, actually, being married to and now working with Mindy Fully Love, a psychiatrist, has meant that there has been a mental health focus. We started doing research on crack cocaine in 1987. We published, while we were at the University of California, San Francisco, one of the first survey research articles looking at the behaviors of young people who were engaging in the use of crack and who were using it as an aphrodisiac. Back in the day, in the 80s, the word on the street was uh, crack cocaine is one of those things that's really going to dramatically impact the quality of your sexual performance. So it was literally sold as an enhancer and as an wow, aid Wow, I didn't realize that. Later on, as we moved to New York City, it became real clear when we were working in drug treatment programs, specifically Lincoln Hospital Substance Abuse Division back in the early 1990s when the late Michael Smith was there, we were very concerned with a number of women who made it clear that their use of crack cocaine wasn't because they were seeking a thrill. It's because in many cases they were medicating a depression, or as we noted in an article that we published in the Journal of Traumatic Stress, post-traumatic stress disorder. Post-traumatic stress disorder that arose from much of the violence that was present in the communities in the 80s and 90s, much of which was focused around everything related to the drug trade. So we literally discovered that having been exposed to sexual abuse and violent traumas had such an impact on the lives of individuals that not only did they have post-traumatic stress disorder, what we now label in mental health as a substance abuse disorder was also intimately connected. So what we wound up saying is, look, this is a comorbid condition. You have a substance abuse disorder that is driven in large measure by what's happening because of an untreated depression or post-traumatic stress disorder. If drug treatment programs are going to be effective, they have to do both. You have to identify the stigma. You have to identify the PTSD. And then when folks are able to deal with that, maybe it'll help them engage in conversations that will allow them to see how their drug use is very much tied to issues with their trauma that they've never been able to resolve. I want to suggest that the current crisis we have with opioids 
and the opioid epidemic is also driven in large measure by folk who are not necessarily thrill seekers, but who've been given something because it's going to allow them to step away from whatever pains they're going through in life. And this isn't all of it, but it is such an important part of it. And because drug treatment itself should be good mental health therapy, especially because of the fact that when we started doing this work, David Satcher was the Surgeon General, the guy who probably did more to have Surgeon General's reports, one of which focused on mental health as a public health issue. I mean, we, we've been very much influenced by that and have tried to say that much of what happens in our community uh, has a mental health undertone to it. And understanding how people think, how they react, how they don't react has in large measure reflected something in the way of, can I say this, generational trauma that still has reverberations from, uh, from slavery. We live with the consequences of that today. The, the 13th Amendment not only freed slaves, but it also created the back door, mass incarceration, by saying, you know, the only exception is if you're been duly convicted of a crime, I got you. So leasing, convict leasing policies, declaring loitering or vagrancy as crimes that could get you on a chain gang. I mean, at some levels, the 1860s were a preview for what we're going through today, and that so much of the stress that's in the community is often translated in families where one of the one or both of the parents is away. Kids are struggling to literally be raised in a vacuum where there's not that much in the way of adult supervision. I, I, we've suggested these are all issues that go at the mental health of the community as well as its physical health, and we do see them as all bound together. I understand you have the 400 Years of Inequality right. Project. Can you tell our audience a little bit about what that is and, and what it what what the goal is behind it? Yeah. Again, sort of consistent with all of this, we've said that uh, there are public health consequences that arise from failure to really address all the conditions that made slavery an important integral part of the history of the United States. So we've said that this doesn't just affect people of African descent. We've said that because three articles of the Constitution, at the moment it was written, specifically endorsed and created a fabric, a framework for slavery in the United States, that we created this odd cognitive dissonance. We have as the nation's motto, all persons are created equal. But in the document that asserts that, we also said, yeah, but some of you are all going to be slaves and you're going to be counted as slaves. You're going to be treated as property. We're saying that that cognitive dissonance creates what Mindy Fully Love termed an ecology of inequality. That affects immigrants, women, members of the LGBT community, folk who are struggling with mental illness and who are struggling like crazy to get it resolved, folks who live with a wide variety of disabilities. We're saying that in all of that, while it is common for there to be social oppression in the world because of a human being's tendency to otherize other, in the United States, where we set up a constitution that's supposed to make us do better, the fact that we don't, that there are health disparities, that each of the groups I cited has a set of health conditions that are uniquely uh, a function of the status that they have in the world. We're saying that this is an opportunity for us to look at the past, reflect on it, learn something from our history, understand where that puts us today, and then make some plans for tomorrow. And it really does come about because the average American from your generation knows no history. 
You don't have an idea, a clue as to what happened the day before you were born. So the fact that, for example, only 8% of American high school seniors can cite slavery as the cause of the Civil War means that, yeah, we've got a real task ahead of us to help people understand how much history has created the set of conditions that we're dealing with today. And I use mass incarceration as the classic example that at some levels, we have never gotten away from the status of folk who are working, not getting paid for the work, suffering horribly because of our efforts just to stay alive and, and free, and are more likely to be abused by public policy than aided by it. So health disparities really reflect the condition that arises because we have never been in a status or a situation where we had equal access to all the opportunities that have made this democracy of ours so strong. And so helping people think about that, helping folks learn the lessons of history so that they're not doomed to repeat them, that, that's, been the, that's been the most important objective in 400 years of inequality. Where do you see or how do you see the intersection of the, the, you know, the past in that regard for African-Americans and how that impacts mental health, mental health conditions and so forth like that within the black community? Well, I, I know that to this day, our community struggles to accept help from mental health professionals. I think some of it goes back to the fact that when you're in school, the person who does the evaluation that might put you in a special education setting is often a psychiatrist. So we're not real clear that these folks are out to help us. But we know that folks struggle with depression. We know that folks struggle with a variety of issues that could be rendered a lot more manageable where they simply gain access to that help. So the idea that we have a lingering history of mistrust of mental health services a lingering history sometimes of a mistrust of doctors and of clinical settings. I think all of this is really bound together. Uh, folks don't necessarily know the details of the Tuskegee syphilis study, but they will tell you in a minute, you know, they used to experiment on us. Right. And I mean, this is something that people Or J. Know. Marion Sims or, or any of these other... Henrietta Lacks. I mean, you know, <clears throat> you don't have to scratch the history of American medicine the history of American psychiatry very deeply before you understand that, you know, this has not always been good for us. Dr. Mary Bassett, the former commissioner of health for the city of New York, used to love to give talks as commissioner about what it meant in slavery days when the desire to run away from slavery was considered a mental illness. I'm sorry, I, I should have remembered to write down the name, but no, look it up. You'll see that this was one of a variety of conditions that were thought to be elements of madness because of the refusal of the Negro to accept the condition of servitude in which God had cast him. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, it goes deep, 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 deep. And folks wonder, yeah, you want to talk about how I feel, how I think? I don't think so. And as a consequence, I think we do a lot of suffering in silence. And a lot of that suffering I've suggested is how you explain why drug abuse epidemics have such a devastating toll on our community. Once again, in too many instances, this is what people do to sort of get their heads right because they live in a system that is oppressive with 
dozens of uh, microaggressions that one will endure over the course of a day, a week, or a month, and that we're not always able to manage all that because we don't have the language to talk about it, and we're not necessarily that good at sharing it with others, means that uh, some of our health care needs are make that much more problematic because one of the things that we might be able to do manage how we think and how we feel, manage our moods, is also something that we struggle with. I can't dissociate Vietnam from that conversation too, right? Because so many black men went to Vietnam, fought in the war, developed all types of addiction issues there and here and came back with them. And so when we talk about like mass incarceration and, you know, war on drugs and all this other stuff, I almost also see vietnam at the root of that issue right or it's part of it because it had a really debilitating effect on a lot of people both psychologically um in regard to what people saw in the war but also some of the things that they partook in as a result of the war and recall it's the case of beware of what you asked for in 1948 president truman had to desegregate the armed forces Black folks didn't fight alongside white people up until Vietnam. One has to sort of see that Vietnam was the first time when blacks got to serve, they got to fight. In fact, their numbers were in excess. They were overrepresented, shall we say, in the population of folk who went over there to fight. So there's a lot of exposure that black men had to all the problems of life in the military, fighting a war that basically didn't go anywhere. And that those folk came back struggling with issues that they weren't able to deal with there does, in fact, create much of the climate for, amongst other things, the war on drugs. Right. Remember, it wasn't just that folks were using drugs. It's that our connection, our understanding that so many of the folk who were exposed to the conditions of violence were, in fact, traumatized. And we're, in fact, medicating the trauma using drugs. So you're right. It's it's intimately bound up in how much we did to fight a war against drugs, which could have been handled differently. Instead of turning over America's problems with substance use to the courts, to the cops, and to our systems of incarceration, we could have said, as we're doing now with the opioid crisis, this is a public health issue. Addiction is something that should not be treated as a crime. It should be treated as an illness that we can manage. We should see this as part of what we're doing with the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, uh, number five, which is really helping us understand how to put this stuff in context. Well, back in the day, the context was, oh, you're smoking this stuff, you're going to jail. You're selling this stuff, you're going to jail. You're committing a crime under the influence of this stuff. You're definitely going to jail. So it's absolutely correct to sort of understand that over time, uh, what started with Vietnam and our inability to deal with the problems of the veterans who are returning home continues to this day because we still, as a nation, struggle with what are we going to do with substance abuse? What are we going to do with substance abuse disorders? We're going to legalize marijuana on the one hand, but we're spending billions to try and treat folk who are addicted to opioids on the other. It's a confused state of affairs, and I want to suggest that our inability as a nation to understand how much of this is about mental health, not just criminal behavior, means that we'll always have solutions that really aren't quite what they should be, aren't really quite what they could be. 
And it's a problem. Kind of depressing because of <laughs> the stuff that, you know, this is it's such it's intense content. Well, maybe the thing you want to focus on is the fact that, yeah, I worry about this, too. I do talks on health disparities. And the first thing you think of is any community that's suffering under the weight of these issues. You can think of them as victims. Well, the problems with victims, what do you do with victims? You give them charity. Whatever happened to agency? If you think about what the Bard Prison Initiative is all about, that's folks actually saying, let me get an education, let me study public health, let me go back into the community as a public health professional, let me see what I can do based on what I know to reverse conditions that people in public health don't seem to be that effective in managing. That level of agency, I think, is also a part of what gave rights gave rise to the civil rights movement. I mean, I, I think it's it's always important to understand that in addition to everything else, what has saved us, especially from annihilation, has been our sense of agency and our belief that, you know, we, we can do something about this. The occupation of the United States and the role that slaves played in that is really, really significant, but we survived it. We survived it. We emerged from it in a community that continues to have more births than deaths, and where is the proof of that more evident than in the fact that in 2040, white people will be just the largest minority group in the United States? And that's because while their birth numbers are falling, everybody else's are growing. And, you know, it, it seems to me that represents our capacity to survive, to engage in struggle, and somehow or other remain. We're still here. We're not perfect. We're not in anything that looks like a utopia, but we're still here. We're having this conversation right now. And what is the purpose of this conversation if not to make people aware of issues and have them thinking, yeah, what should I be doing? What could I be doing? As long as that's going on, I, I, I tend to think that there's more cause for optimism than not. I mean, you're right. It's really depressing stuff, but I don't want to rule out our capacity to engage in the agency that we've all been given to do something really concrete to make things better. You have been doing some work in France. Yeah. yeah, yeah, what, yeah. What, is, what has that work consisted of exactly? Yeah, part of it is that uh, I just fell in love with the language. I'm fluent. And we've been, Mindy Fulilove and I have been working there since the 1980s. And we're very interested in French urbanism. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not to say that France, for example, is the land of milk and honey or that, you know, it's got all the solutions. The issues they have with race and racism are at least as ferocious as they are yep. here. But but we have connected with a variety of folk who are really clear that some of what troubles us most in a highly segregated land is the manner in which we create communities and neighborhoods and the idea that somehow or other you can have design issues, you can do urban planning in a way that promotes diversity, that even has an impact on a public health crisis like obesity and our lack of exercise, our, our sedentary behavior. I mean, these are all things that we've learned at the feet of the French. And Mindy Fullilove has three books that really feature her adaptation of the principles of French urbanism to what we do in public health especially with the built environment, to try and make things better. So if you imagine uh, the classic image of the ghetto, I'm exaggerating the word, so I'm, I'm trying not to <laughs> use it in, in that positive sense, 
where all of a sudden you are able to transform the ways in which the street is used, the ways in which people interact with each other. It's so important to understand that this is a nation that at the point of the 1930s abandoned any notion that you could have positive urban development. Think about it. What's the one thing you know when you're in the United States and you go to any reasonable large-sized city? It is that in that city, you will have a good neighborhood and you will have a bad neighborhood. It means that we invest in our communities in a very differential way. We don't make it routinely available to create an urban environment that's good for everybody. No, our urban environments are hugely segregated by race, by class, and by a variety of other things that has almost created, more than anything else, the settings for health disparities to occur. So going back to my notion that there's a geography of health disparities, that it's largely most visible in urban inner city communities, the, the notion that some of what we're looking at represents urban renewal and increasingly gentrification, where populations are being shuttered and bumbled and busted and moved about so much that they can never create stable communities, which is a real incredibly important component of public health. Yeah, these are the things that we focused on, that if you understand the structure of the built environment and the policies that govern its use, you not only understand what creates the residential segregation that is so prominent in our lives and in our cities, you'll also understand why some segregated communities, with their total lack of investment on the part of just about anybody, are also places that harbor some of the highest rates of health disparities from a variety of conditions anywhere that you're going to see in the United States. So we see it's all bound together. You just mentioned how gentrification and the sort of exodus of people out of certain areas impacts public health. For somebody that is gentrifying, how could you put that into context for them? How, how, could, how can you, can you explain that to them, like how gentrification impacts the public health of people that are being pushed out? Yeah, so think about the city, the urban area in the United States, as a place that has a lot of very uneven efforts to invest in what's there. Uh, nobody wants poor communities of color to remain poor with bad housing, with all kinds of uh, conditions that lead to poor health from lead paint to just being located near uh, a polluting site. These are all things that we'd love to see improved. And the way you're going to improve them is to invest in what's going on. Um, because so much of the pattern of urban education is dramatically affected by the taxes that are available in a community. Poor communities are, by virtue of their poverty, going to have poor schools. So you'd love to have some urban redevelopment. And that just means, that doesn't mean just money being spent in these areas. It also means that you want a more diverse population so that you have something that you don't see in too many urban areas now, where there's a mixture of folk who are working class, middle class, and maybe even upper class. So the idea that somehow or other you could change things by reformatting what it is we do in these communities, how it is we invest in, gentrifying is only a problem if it means that one population is being moved out while another is moving in. If you've got folk who are coming in to invest in the life of the community and they're bringing their money, the jobs that could be created when their needs are met, 
why wouldn't everybody like that and see this as a way of maybe bringing a poor community back into shape? But that isn't what is happening in too many instances. It's the replacement of one population by another. So what that means is that generations of folks growing up next to each other, where the process of being a good neighbor is part of the culture of the place that you live, in too many instances, we have been subject to so many moves, so much in the way of displacement, urban renewal in the 50s and 60s and early 70s, and then the tearing down through Hope 6 of all the public housing projects. Chicago, St. Yeah, Louis. Exactly. And then gentrification, it means that you've got a lot of segregated communities where everybody looks like each other, but they don't know each other. And because they don't know each other, the things that we want to do in public health, getting people to work together, creating what's called collective efficacy by saying, hey, let's do something about teenage pregnancy. Let's do something to help folks who are struggling with drug use. And Those kinds of programs are very difficult to build, to build if people don't know each other, don't trust each other, and don't really see the benefit of working together. So... Uh, we keep thinking that the problem with gentrification isn't just that people are being moved. It's that the conditions that we know create stable neighborhoods that are socially viable, that really can be a positive influence in the growth and development of children. That's the thing that's really missing, because if you're not there long enough to establish that kind of relationship between your neighbors and the people in your family, what we're going to have is what we have in too many areas. Folks who... Uh, mumble to each other, but don't really speak, who don't know each other, don't share very much. Let's, let's be clear. Isn't New York City a town where everybody has a PhD in mind your own business? <laughs> <laughs> and in that kind of setting, you know, how do you get folks saying, let's get, let's get together and talk about access to education for our kids or access to health care? That becomes a really difficult thing to do. And, and all of us who benefited from being in a community where everybody knew us, and everybody was looking out for us so that if we started to do something stupid, there was always an adult who was present to say, you know, you might want to rethink that. That's what's missing. I mean, I think the cliche, it takes a village to raise a child. It's just that. It's a cliche. But like so many cliches, it has a real kernel of truth to it. When the entire neighborhood is involved in the welfare of kids, the kids are going to do better. When the only person who's looking out for you is your older brother or your mom, then I, I think that all the issues of social development that we just depend on as a species to have occur as a young person enters adult life. I think those things are missing. And creating communities where they can be present, that's one of the ways in which you can promote the health of the public. And it's one of the ways, if gentrification is to be a powerful force, if it helps us create viable neighborhoods that are both diverse but interactive, where people know each other and can treat each other as neighbors, then I think there's always some hope. But for the most part, gentrification has been nothing but bad news. Gentrification has a profound impact on neighborhoods. And the neighborhoods most adversely affected by it are communities where you find black and brown people. When people are displaced, they're not just losing their homes. They lose culture and social and political connectedness as well. A recent study from researchers in New York found that 
hospitalization rates for mental illnesses such as schizophrenia and mood disorders are two times as high with displaced people than they are with those who stay in their neighborhoods. Gentrification breaks community, breaks tradition, and ultimately breaks people's sense of hope and will. Being displaced means you don't have the privilege or the wherewithal to think long term, which is a breeding ground for anxiety, depression, and even trauma. And it's easy to see why the health and well-being of communities gentrified is compromised. The allure and in some cases mere need to engage in risky behaviors is magnified. Everything from sexual activity to nutrition to livelihood is subject to short-term thinking. In order to sacrifice the present, you have to believe in a promising future. Gentrification makes it hard to stay healthy, both physically and emotionally. You've been pretty involved in like your research and a lot of the work you're doing, very much rooted in social justice. This started a long time ago for you, based on what I read about you online. You know, that's how we do research these days. <laughs> you were part of Freedom Summer. How did that impact? How did being a part of that experience, you know, sort of situate you where you are and where you've been today? Very, very good question. So the first thing to point out is that my family has very solid roots in Mississippi. And I'm a kid of privilege. I always have to point this out. My dad and my grandfather were both physicians. My grandfather practiced medicine in Yazoo City, Mississippi for well over 50 years. And he was a very well-known presence in the community. When I became involved in the civil rights movement, the focus of attention was Mississippi. In 1963, Medgar Evers was shot in his driveway for daring to mention that African-Americans should be voting. In 1963, I I attended a conference at Bryn Mawr called the Second American Revolution, which was about civil rights. And there I met a number of members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, the most prominent of whom was Stokely Carmichael. Stokely was a student at Howard University, majoring in philosophy. I was a student at Colgate majoring in philosophy. We had an interesting debate in one of the sessions at this conference that had Stokely come up to me and say, you know, dude, you know, we got some stuff here. We we, 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 we see more of you. In 1964, because of the chaplain at Colgate University, Robert D. Smith, who had met Dr. King that summer and who came back to the campus inflamed with the notion that all of his black students should be involved in the civil rights movement. <laughs> he got all four of us together <laughs> and said, I got some projects for you. So I went south in the spring of 1964 and spent, I think, three and a half weeks, not quite sure of how much time, as an intern in the offices of Martin Luther King. There was a YMYWCA program that made all this possible. And we were attached in the group that went to Atlanta to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference's offices. And our mentor, if you will, the guy who was directing our activities, was Andrew Young, who would later be the mayor of Atlanta and the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. under Jimmy Carter. So I'm surrounded by, you know, an incredible amount of movement that is directed towards getting people to register to vote. And then, if you'll forgive the name dropping, Julian Bond, who later became, amongst other things, uh, uh, 
quite well-respected person of letters who was the president of the NAACP uh, in the early 2000s. He comes over and says, dude, we understand you're from Mississippi, that your family's from Mississippi. We got to tell you about Mississippi Freedom Summer. And that's when it really started to get serious. My dad was so impressed that I was going to go to Mississippi. Unlike a lot of parents who were saying, no, you're not going to do anything. It's really dangerous. He said, what can I do to help? And he made a rather sizable donation so that when I showed up there, I was somebody who wasn't just going to volunteer time and energy. I was also somebody who had some resources to sort of contribute to what it is we did. But maybe the most important thing that happened is that Mississippi Freedom Summer had something of a caste system. You were either a volunteer, a local person, or you were a SNCC field secretary. Because of my connection to Carmichael, Sokley came over one of the first days of the orientation for Mississippi Freedom Summer and said, hey, you're with us. And I became a SNCC field secretary, which was status that I held for four years. I, I, was, I was in the organization literally up until the point that it sort of disbanded. And it became so clear when I was in the South that I wasn't bad as a community organizer. I wasn't bad as somebody who could stand up in front of a pulpit and give talks that would have people saying, yeah, we're, we're going to do what you say. We're going we're gonna to follow whatever lead you can provide us because we like what you're doing. We want to be a part of it. That meant that uh, I came back to the South in 1965. Uh, I graduated from college in 1966 and joined SNCC staff as a full-time worker doing community organizing in Newark. So that means that at that very faithful period in the civil rights movement, up until 1968, when in, Dr. King was assassinated in April, and I, mean, I was really sort of heavily involved in a lot of the thinking that young people who were attached to the movement were engaged in. And I really never gave up the idea that organizing our community, more than studying it, more than teaching in it, organizing was absolutely what we were going to have to do. And later in life, as somebody engaged in doing public health work in communities, I'm really clear. Let's organize folk to put together interventions that will do something about HIV AIDS, that will do something about mass incarceration, that will do something effective about the problems with drugs that are so present in our community. And I really do see, you're absolutely right, that's an extension of that because it isn't so much about medicine as much as it is social justice. The conditions that we struggle with in our community are problematic, not just because they cause us to have lower levels of life expectancy. They're problematic because they are preventable, because they are fundamentally evil, that they represent choices that have been made explicitly and sometimes unconsciously, but choices that have been made that deliberately put us at substantial disadvantage. And the most visible evidence of that disadvantage is in our health. So seeing that you're going from organizing communities around the vote to organizing communities around the health is kind of pretty much the same thing. Uh, it's the idea that, once again, we have agency. Much of what we want to do is not wait for charity to come to us. We want to be engaged in the development of the programs, the policies, and the approaches that are most likely to affect us, our health, and the well-being of our kids. What was your experience like as a black man going to Mississippi and trying to organize people to vote? So the one thing about the movement at that point was it was really diverse. The leadership in SNCC was overwhelmingly black, but not entirely. 
the number of volunteers who went south to work with Mississippi Freedom Summer. Overwhelming majority were white, but they had to work in diverse settings. And the key was you were very visibly giving people an image, blacks, whites working together. I mean, it was a vision of what we thought the country could be. And we were simply acting it out, if you will, when we were talking to people about voting, having people understand what it means to live in a democratic republic, and how much that meant that we all had a responsibility for each other. I mean, a lot of what was going on was modeling the idea that this is what the country should look like. This is what a just America would be about. And the understanding that to be involved in this work is to see it as a struggle. It wasn't fun. Uh, it was tedious. A lot of it was boring because you did the same thing every, every day. But over time, you started to see really dramatic impacts. And that that's the part of this that has kind of never left me. Like if you were speaking to a group of young black people like myself, I don't know if I'm that young anymore, but what would your message be to them? How How could, you know, we're talking about organizing and mm. things like that. If you had like a minute to do an elevator pitch to to a group of young black Americans, like what would that what would you impart on them? I worry most that those of us who are educated and who are acquiring a certain level of privilege might fall into the trap of believing that it's all about us and our individual struggles. What we need to be about, what we have always been about as a people is if it's not happening for all of us, it's not happening for any of us. So the idea that we have a responsibility with whatever gains we've gotten as a result of our education, our jobs, or a combination of both, we still owe something to the communities that gave birth to us. And the more we're able to give back, the more we're able to engage with each other around the struggle to do better, the better off we're going to be. It's literally resisting the siren call of rabid individualizing your life. So it's all about me and not about others. If we can avoid that trap, avoid the trap of it's all about me, I think we'll be in really, really terrific shape. Clearly, Bob's life has been rooted in service and advocacy for those who lack agency and choice. And much of his work hints at the idea of going into communities and trying to equip people with the education and skills needed to fight cyclical plight, especially in poor communities of color. When you think of the black community, it's impossible not to think of the great community organizers we've had. And most recently, we lost a great one. I couldn't reflect on my conversation with Bob and not think of the late Nipsey Hussle. Most people outside the black community still don't understand the magnitude and significance of this loss. When you're a product of communities that are at higher risk to physical and mental illness, a big challenge is finding balance between being an agent of change while simultaneously avoiding physical and mental distress. The narrative is often so-and-so sold out, they left the hood behind, and so on. Nip sought to provide the black community with a roadmap of how to invest, and in the process gave all those who followed him the greatest gift, agency. But despite being someone who stayed true, Nipsey's investment came with an elevated risk, and he tragically paid the price. Much of the black community's reverence of Nipsey is rooted in the idea that he was someone that didn't sell out. He never left the hood behind. Although he was such a visionary, Nip's life reminds us that how do you balance and acknowledge the idea of reinvesting in your community when the very nature of being in your community is a risk? 
All right, everybody, before we wrap up this episode, I just want to thank Bob for joining me on 730. He was very generous with his time. And as I said before, I learned so much in our conversation. And I also want to thank former 730 guest Gabriel Mendez, who connected the two of us. I have been trying to get in contact with Bob for several months. And finally, I reached out to Gabriel because I know Gabriel does a lot of prison education stuff. And I thought, well, maybe he knows Bob. And I reached out to Gabriel and Gabriel was like, yeah, of course I know Bob. So he connected the two of us. And Bob felt really bad because he hadn't responded to a couple of my emails. But it's all good, Bob. We, we made it work. And, and again, I appreciate it so much. I also want to share a film with you all that's somewhat related to my conversation with Bob. You know, he does a lot of work with prison education programs and he even teaches in prisons. And there's a recent documentary titled College Behind Bars. And it's available on PBS. You can stream it online. And the film is an inside look at the Bard Prison Initiative, which provides men and women in New York State prisons access to an elite liberal arts education. The film is incredible. Just so many riveting and inspiring stories that really reflect the human potential that exists behind prison walls. As someone that has had close relatives incarcerated, the film gave me a lot of hope about the possibilities for redemption. Shout out to Lynn Novick and Sarah Botstein for, for doing such an incredible job with the film. And before we close, I just want to say Happy New Year to all of our listeners. As we get back in the flow of 730, our next guest is going to be Amani McGee Stafford. She's a current WNBA player, poet, and mental health advocate. So that's all we have for this episode, and we'll catch you on the next one. Peace.